Welcome ZooAssemblyers! My name is Zuka Zalishvili and I'm the founder of ZooAssembly. ZooAssembly is an online podcast for the highest yield basic science and clinical knowledge tested on USMLE Step 1 and USMLE Step 2 CK. The information discussed in this podcast is intended only for educational purposes. It's not intended to prevent, diagnose, or to treat the medical conditions in real clinical practice, nor is it intended to reflect the policy and the guidelines of various health institutions. Simply put, we serve you to butcher your step exams. Please subscribe to our podcast, Facebook, Instagram pages, and the YouTube channels down below in the description of this episode so that we keep you tuned for the news at ZooSMLE. Now, let's start rolling. Today we are starting the musculoskeletal system and the first subsection of the musculoskeletal system will be anatomy and physiology. And the very first topic that we are going to discuss in this episode is rotator cuff muscles and rotator cuff injury. Before we dive deep into this topic, let me tell you what the rotator cuff is. Rotator cuff is the collection of four muscles which surround and protect the humerus or the arm bone from three sides anteriorly, laterally, and posteriorly. It's very important to know which muscles constitute the rotator cuff, and it's also very high yield to know the innervation of each of these muscles. So let's go by one muscle at a time. But before that, let me tell you a very useful mnemonic that I personally use every time I recall the rotator cuff muscles. And this is the first date mnemonic, and it sounds like this, SITS. So S-I-T-S, but T is the lowercase t. Each letter in the word SITS signifies each rotator cuff muscle. The first S stands for supraspinatus muscle. I stands for infraspinatus muscle. The lowercase t stands for teres minor, and it's lowercase t to remind us that it's teres minor and not teres major, because there are two muscles, right? Teres minor and teres major. But the teres muscle that's part of the rotator cuff is teres minor. And the final S stands for subscapularis. Let's start by talking about the supraspinatus muscle. And let's break down the word, supraspinatus. The word literally means above the spine. But above the spine of what? It's above the scapular spine. Let's remind ourselves that the scapula has the protrusion on the posterior side, which is called scapular spine. And then the muscle, which is located on the posterior surface of the scapula above the scapular spine, is appropriately called supraspinatus muscle. Supraspinatus muscle, just like the infraspinatus muscle, is innervated by the suprascapular nerve. And it also makes sense because if the muscle is above the 
scapular spine and if the muscle is on the posterior or like I, I mean if, if the muscle is on the posterior surface of the scapula then it will be innervated by the suprascapular nerve the nerve that also lies posterior to the scapula the function of supraspinatus muscle is the initial abduction of the arm after we are done with discussing the rotator cuff then we will talk about the muscles responsible for arm abduction at the different degrees but for now let's mention the fact that supraspinatus is responsible for the initial abduction of the arm before the deltoid muscle kicks in and one general rule of thumb here guys I would like you to I'd like to ask you to look at the illustration of the rotator cuff muscles while we are explaining this and I'd like you to imagine the insertion points of these muscles on the humerus I'm not asking you to memorize them I'm just asking you to look at them while we are explaining these and the reason for this is that if you imagine how each muscle contracts in the rotator cuff you will be able to recall the function of each muscle what I'm saying that what I'm saying is that you don't even have to remember and literally memorize the function of each muscle you just have to memorize the image and imagine how each muscle will contract and how it will move the entire arm okay supraspinatus as we already mentioned abducts the arm initially and supraspinatus is the most commonly injured rotator cuff muscle supraspinatus muscle can be injured by trauma by degeneration or by impingement if you remember from the anatomy supraspinatus muscle is between the acromion which is the uh, I mean the extension of the scapular spine and between the coracoid process of the scapula and the supraspinatus tendon can be impinged in this space and this will cause the weakness of this muscle tendinopathy of the supraspinatus muscle will be manifested as the weakness to abduct the arm associated with pain however the supraspinatus tendon can also be torn and if we have the tear of the supraspinatus tendon then the most prominent symptom here will be weakness without that much pain like there will be almost no pain but the patient will have severe severe weakness in the initial abduction of the arm let's realize one very important concept here if the patient has supraspinous tendinopathy or tendon tear the patient will still be able to abduct the arm after let's say 15 degrees of abduction because supraspinatus muscle is only responsible for the initial phase of abduction 
And the way we can check the strength of supraspinatus and its tendon is by the empty and full can test. This is when we extend our arms and, we, and, and the thumbs look down towards the floor. Then the examiner will push the patient's forearms down and the patient should resist the physician's maneuver. In that case, the patient needs to resist the downward pressure by trying to abduct the arms. And this is how we check the intact nature of the supraspinatus and its tendon. Let's move on to infraspinatus muscle. And I hope that this will be easier to imagine where this muscle is after discussing the supraspinatus muscle. Infraspinatus means that the muscle is below the scapular spine. However, infraspinatus muscle is innervated by the suprascapular nerve just like the supraspinatus muscle. This is because both these muscles are located above, on, on the above surface or on the posterior surface of the scapula. Now, infraspinatus muscle externally rotates the whole arm and it's commonly injured in the pitching movements. For example, when the patient plays baseball, then the patient might injure the infraspinatus muscle or the tendon. Now, teres minor has two functions. First, just like infraspinatus muscle, teres minor also performs the external rotation of the arm. But additionally, the teres minor can adduct the arm. The easy way that I remember that the teres minor has two functions is that teres minor consists, the name itself consists of two words, right? Teres minor. And this helps me remember that teres minor has two functions. This is external rotation and adduction. Teres minor is innervated by the axillary nerve. And we will discuss the axillary nerve in detail later in this episode. The final rotator cuff muscle is subscapularis. Now, let me ask you a question. Let's break down the word. Subscapularis. Where do you guys think this muscle is located? Are you saying under the scapula? If you are, that's totally right. Subscapularis muscle is located on, on the inferior or inner surface of the scapula. And subscapularis muscle also has two functions, just like teres minor. Subscapularis internally rotates the arm and it adducts the arm. Finally, the innervation of subscapularis muscle is done by upper and lower subscapular nerves. And that's a very easy point, right? Because subscapularis muscle is supposed to be innervated by the subscapular nerves. And then the only thing we have to remember is that we have two upper and lower subscapular nerves. Let's summarize the nerves which innervate the different muscles of the rotator cuff. This is suprascapular nerve 
axillary nerve and upper and lower subscapular nerves. All of these nerves consist of the axons coming from the C5 and C6 spinal nerves. Therefore, we can say that the rotator cuff muscles are innervated by C5 and C6 spinal nerve roots. Okay, this was discussion about the rotator cuff muscles, and now let's move on to arm abduction and the appropriate muscles. As we already mentioned in the discussion of the rotator cuff, arm abduction is mediated by several muscles and the several nerves. It's very high yield to know each muscle in the accompanying nerve because the patient will have arm abduction deficit in that specific angle abduction of which is like is mediated by a specific nerve and let me explain what this means on the basis of an example so the first 15 degrees of arm abduction is mediated by could you please finish the sentence that's right it's mediated by supraspinatus muscle and we already explained that supraspinatus muscle is innervated by suprascapular nerve. Now, the arm abduction from 15 to 90 degrees, 90, is mediated by the deltoid muscle. Deltoid muscle is the muscle that sits right on top of the arm, and its function as we just explained, is to abduct the arm from 15 to 90 degrees. Deltoid muscle is innervated by the axillary nerve and more on the axillary nerve coming later in this episode. After the arm is abducted at more than 90 degrees, then we have two major muscles contributing to arm abduction. First, this is trapezius muscle. Trapezius muscle is called trapezius because it, it looks like trapezium and descending fibers coming down from the cervical vertebrae mediate the arm abduction. Trapezius muscle is innervated by the spinal accessory nerve. Spinal accessory nerve is the 11th cranial nerve. And we will discuss the cranial nerves in a great detail in the neuroscience section. Okay, and then the final muscle that kicks in during arm abduction is serratus anterior. Serratus anterior is located on the ribs and it attaches to the medial border of the scapula. And when serratus anterior contracts, that will abduct the arm. It's very, very, very high yield to know that serratus anterior is innervated by long thoracic nerve. Long thoracic nerve is created by the axons coming from the C5, C6, and C7 roots. And we'll touch on that later again in this episode. Okay, now it's time to discuss the upper extremity nerves.
But before we dive deep into discussion of each individual nerve of the upper extremity, let's talk about the brachial plexus. Brachial plexus is the network of the spinal nerves creating the upper extremity innervation. So brachial plexus creates those nerves that innervate the upper extremity. And I mean both sensory innervation and motor innervation. Brachial plexus originates from the part of the spinal cord which is called cervical enlargement. This is the part of the cervical spinal cord which is larger than the other parts of the spinal cord. And the reason for this is that the anterior horns of the spinal cord gray matter are very large. I know that this I know that the topic that I'm going to ask the question about now is not the part of the musculoskeletal. But still, let me ask you a question. Do you guys remember which kind of neurons are located in the anterior horns? Mm -hmm. Louder, please. That's right. Alpha motor neurons or lower motor neurons, which are directly responsible for innervating the skeletal muscles, are located in the anterior horns. And now you can imagine that we use our upper extremities thousands and millions of times during the day. Therefore, we need very intricate and very detailed innervation of the muscles of the upper extremities. And for this, we need many, many lower motor neurons in the cervical enlargement of the spinal cord. Cervical enlargement gives rise to five spinal nerves. This is C5, C6, C7, C8, and T1. And these five nerves are those spinal nerves that create the brachial plexus. Now, let's talk about the different segments of the brachial plexus and how they are connected to each other. In order to remember the names of the different brachial plexus sections or segments, it's very useful to know this mnemonic. It sounds like this. Randy Travis drinks cold beer. <laughs> this is first aid mnemonic and the first letters of each word in this sentence signifies the different segment of the brachial plexus. So the first word is Randy, right? And the, and the letter R stands for roots. Spinal nerves coming out from the spinal cord are called the roots relative to the brachial plexus. And it's very important to know that long thoracic nerve originates from the C5, C6, C7 roots. Please, note the word roots here. We are not saying trunk, we are not saying division, the cord, the branches, which are the other distal segments of the brachial plexus. We are saying roots. So long thoracic nerve is the very first nerve arising from the brachial plexus, and specifically from the C5, C6, and C7 
nerve roots. After roots, we have the trunks. We have three trunks of the brachial plexus, upper, middle, and the lower trunks. Upper trunk is created when the C5 and C6 roots join each other. Middle trunk is simply the continuation of the C7 nerve root. And the lower trunk is similar to the upper trunk in a sense that lower trunk is received by joining of two nerve roots. This is C8 and T1. Okay, after trunks, we have divisions. Each trunk has two divisions, anterior and posterior. And then these divisions create the cords. We have three cords in the brachial plexus. This is lateral, posterior, and the medial cords. Now these cords surround the axillary artery. Let me ask you a question from the anatomy, guys. Could you please tell me continuation of which artery is the axillary artery? That's absolutely true. Axillary artery is the continuation of the subclavian artery. An axillary artery together with the brachial plexus cords is located in the axillary sheath. Axillary sheath is the circular connective tissue which encloses the brachial plexus cords and the axillary artery. Now let's discuss how the brachial plexus cords are created from the anterior and posterior divisions of the trunks. Anterior division and the post anterior division of the upper trunk and posterior division of the middle trunk. Sorry, um, I'm so sorry. Anterior divisions of both upper and middle trunk create the lateral cord. Now, anterior division of the lower trunk becomes the medial cord. And then posterior divisions of all three trunks, upper, middle, and lower, join together and create the posterior cord. And after the cords, we have branches of the brachial plexus. Branches are those individual nerves that we are going to discuss after we are done with the structure of the brachial plexus. Now, the lateral cord gives rise to the musculocutaneous nerve. The medial cord, exclusively medial cord, gives rise to the ulnar nerve. And then lateral and medial cords send out the fibers to create one of the largest nerves of the brachial plexus, which is median nerve. And then posterior cord sends out several nerves, but two highest yield nerves arising from the posterior cord are axillary nerve and the radial nerve. Okay, this was the structure of the brachial plexus. Let's recap it very quickly. Randy Travis drinks cold beer.
first we have the brachial plexus roots which are actually the same things as the spinal nerves the roots give rise to the trunks the trunks give rise to the anterior and posterior divisions now divisions form the cords and we have lateral posterior and the medial cords and then finally cords give rise to those individual nerves or branches innervating the muscles of the upper extremity okay now let's talk about the different nerves that innervate the muscles of the upper extremity the first nerve is the axillary nerve if you remember we already mentioned that the axillary nerve is formed from the posterior cord of the brachial plexus and specifically axillary nerve contains the fibers from the c5 and c6 spinal nerve roots the situations when axillary nerve may be damaged include the fracture of the surgical neck of the humerus now before we discuss the surgical neck fracture any further let's take a step back and talk about the anatomy of the proximal humerus humerus just like any other bone is covered by the articular cartilage which articulates in the glenoid cavity right then the junction between the articular cartilage and the epiphyses is called the anatomical neck of the humerus the junction of the epiphyses and diaphysis is called the surgical neck of the humerus and it's the fracture of the surgical neck which results in the axillary nerve injury this is because the axillary nerve just goes around the humerus from the posterior side axillary nerve is accompanied by posterior circumflex humeral artery so these two structures wind around the humerus from the posterior side and this is why the fractured surgical neck of the humerus can predispose to axillary nerve injury another clinical situation when the axillary nerve may be injured is the anterior dislocation of the humerus when the humerus is dislocated anteriorly this will put the tension on the axillary nerve which can result in the tear of the individual muscle fiber individual nerve fibers within the axillary nerve axillary nerve innervates the deltoid muscle and the skin over the deltoid muscle and the lateral arm now that we know the innervation of the axillary nerve we can predict the symptoms of the axillary nerve injury first deltoid muscle will be denervated and when the muscle is denervated then the muscle undergoes atrophy because there is insufficient stimulation of the muscle over a prolonged period of time we will have flattened deltoid and we will have impaired function of the deltoid muscle let me ask you a question zoos and 
Could you please remind me from this episode what the function is of the deltoid muscle? Are you saying that deltoid muscle abducts the arm from 15 to 90 degrees? That's totally true. Therefore, if the patient has axillary nerve injury, then the patient will have difficulty abducting the, abducting the arm within this particular range of the angles. At the same time, since axillary nerve innervates the skin over deltoid in the lateral arm, the patient with axillary injury will have loss of sensation or decreased sensation over the deltoid and the skin on the lateral arm. Okay, this was the axillary nerve. Now let's move on to the musculocutaneous nerve. Musculocutaneous nerve arises from... Can you tell me from which cord of the brachial plexus the musculocutaneous nerve arises? That's right. It's the lateral cord. And the musculocutaneous nerve contains the nerve fibers from C5, C6, and C7 nerve roots. Musculocutaneous nerve is buried deep down in the anterior arm compartment between two muscles, the brachioradialis and the biceps brachii muscles. Therefore, it's very hard to exert the direct injury to the musculocutaneous nerve. The most common clinical scenario in which the musculocutaneous nerve might be damaged is if there is upper trunk compression. Let's remind ourselves that the upper trunk is created by the C5, C6 nerve roots and then joining of the anterior divisions of the upper and the middle trunks create the lateral cord. And this is where, this is the place from where the musculocutaneous nerve arises from. Okay, now musculocutaneous nerve innervates the biceps brachii muscle and the skin over the lateral forearm. We can now predict the symptoms of the musculocutaneous nerve injury. As we know, biceps brachii muscle is responsible for the forearm flexion and supination in the flexed position. This is a very high yield point, guys. Supination of the arm and the upper extremity is mediated by both radial nerve and the supinators, supinator muscles innervated by the radial nerve and the biceps brachii and the musculocutaneous nerve. It depends on the position of the arm. So, I mean, uh, the way we can understand which nerve and which muscles mediate the supination at a particular point in time is that we need to observe the position of the arm and forearm. If the arm and forearm are flexed at the elbow, then the main muscle supinating the forearm is the biceps brachii. If the forearm and the arm are extended, then the main muscle, main muscles 
responsible for the supination are the supinator muscles innervated by the radial nerve. Now we are talking about the musculocutaneous nerve and the biceps brachii muscle. Therefore, in the patients with musculocutaneous nerve injury, we will have loss of the forearm flexion and supination in the flexed position. And then at the same time, we will have the loss of sensation over the lateral or over the skin of the lateral forearm. Once the musculocutaneous nerve goes beyond the cubital fossa above the elbow, it gives rise to the nerve, which is called lateral antebrachial cutaneous nerve. And this name, which is a mouthful, means that this nerve innervates the skin over the lateral forearm. Therefore, patients with musculocutaneous nerve injury will have the sensory loss over the lateral forearm. Okay, now we'll move on to one of the largest nerves of the brachial plexus, which is the radial nerve. Okay, before we start talking about the clinical features of the radial nerve injury, let's do a quick review of the anatomy of the break, uh, of the radial nerve. Could you please tell me which cord gives rise to the radial nerve? Are you saying posterior cord? If you are, you are totally right. Radial nerve is created by the posterior cord and it contains the fibers, the nerve fibers, from all five nerve roots, C5, C6, C7, C8, and T1. The radial nerve comes down from the level of the shoulder, then it winds around the humerus at the humeral mid-shaft, and then finally it goes into the posterior forearm. Therefore, radial nerve can be damaged at any point along its path down to the upper extremity. The most proximal site of injury of the radial nerve is the axilla. If there is axillary compression, this can also compress the radial nerve. Now, could you please tell me in which situations the patient may have the axillary compression? That's right. It's either crutches, if the patient has, let's say, the leg fracture, fracture and the patient uses crutches, that might cause radial nerve injury in the axilla. At the same time, a very interesting phenomenon called Saturday night palsy can induce the radial nerve injury. If the patient spends considerable amount of time with the arm overhanging the edge of the chair, the edge of the chair can compress the axilla and the radial nerve. Let's say that the patient uh, just drank a lot of alcohol and then, the, uh, then this patient slept on the chair with the arm hanging over the back of the chair. This patient may have radial nerve palsy on the next day. Now the next site of injury of the radial nerve is the 
meat shaft of the humerus. Meat shaft of the humerus has the radial groove, which is the path of the radial nerve on the humerus. The radial groove is created by pulsation of the deep brachial artery during the embryological development of the fetus. And now we also know that radial nerve travels together with the deep brachial artery. Therefore, if we damage the mid shaft humerus, let's say by fracture, this may damage not only the radial nerve, but also the deep brachial artery. And then radial nerve can also be injured by the supracondylar fracture of the humerus. The condyles are the medial and the lateral protrusions immediately above the elbow. So supracondylar fracture is the fracture of the humerus immediately above the medial and lateral condyles. If the patient has supracondylar fracture with the anterolateral displacement of the proximal humeral segment, this will compress the radial nerve. But I'd like to warn you to be careful with the supracondylar fractures because supracondylar fracture can damage either median nerve, which is, by the way, the most commonly injured nerve in the supracondylar fracture, or the radial nerve. And we will discuss when is uh, like when, when the when we damage each of these nerves okay and then the last site of the radial nerve injury is the distal hand or we can say the area between the hand and the wrist and this happens when the patient experience when the patient performs repetitive pronation and supination of the forearm because these repetitive pronation and supination movements compress the radial nerve distally between the hand, between the metacarpal bones and the wrist. For example, if the patient uses screwdriver for a long time, this can result in the distal radial nerve injury. Let's now talk about the clinical features of the radial nerve palsy. It's very high yield to know that the more proximal the injury is, the more symptoms the patient experiences. Therefore, we should know what symptoms will be present at each side of radial nerve injury. But before that, let's talk about what the radial nerve normally innervates. Well, the radial nerve innervates the posterior arm muscle compartment which causes elbow extension. This is the triceps muscle, right? Triceps brachii. It also innervates most of the muscles in the posterior forearm compartment. And these muscles also include the finger extensors. And it also innervates the skin over the posterior arm, posterior forearm, and part of the dorsal hand. We'll talk about the cutaneous innervation of the hand later in these episodes. Okay, now if the patient has the injury of the radial nerve above the elbow, so in the axilla or 
let's say humeral fracture, then the patient will experience weakness in the finger and wrist extension. And at rest, the patient will have the hand position, which is called the finger drop. This is when the wrist is flexed and the fingers are also flexed. If the injury of the radial nerve is at the level of the axilla, then all the functions of the radial nerve will be gone. So we will have decreased innervation of the posterior arm compartment. Therefore, we will have weakened elbow extension. We will have weakened wrist and finger extension. And at the same time, we will have the loss of sensation over the skin of the posterior arm, posterior forearm, and the part of the dorsal hand. Now, bear, me, bear with me here closely. If the patient has radial nerve injury due to meat shaft humeral fracture, then elbow extension and the posterior arm sensation will be spared. Let's explain this phenomenon. Before the radial nerve reaches the meat shaft of the humerus, it already innervates the triceps brachii muscle and it also innervates the skin of the posterior arm. Therefore, if we damage the radial nerve at the humeral meat shaft, this will not affect the innervation of the triceps brachii muscle and the skin of the posterior arm. This is why these two neurological functions of the radial nerve will be maintained. If we have injury at the distal site, for example, at the wrist region, then the patient will have the finger drop. The idea here is that the wrist extensor muscles are already innervated by the radial nerve before the radial nerve reaches the wrist region. Therefore, if the radial nerve is damaged distally in the upper extremity, then the only muscles affected by this injury will be the finger extensor muscles. And that's why we will have the finger drop without the wrist drop. Whenever we have the radial nerve injury with either the wrist drop or the finger drop, we have decreased grip strength. Grip strength is measured by asking the patient to squeeze our fingers with their fingers. And when they squeeze our fingers with their hands, they are flexing their fingers, right? And in order to flex the fingers, the hands should be in extended position initially. What I'm saying is that for the maximal flexion of the fingers, the finger flexor muscles should have the maximal uh, maximal length in the beginning and now you can imagine that if the patient has the radial nerve injury with the wrist drop then the wrist is flexed and the fingers are flexed so the finger flexor muscles are shortened and they have difficulty to shorten even more this is why the grip strength 
will be decreased in the radial nerve injury. I know that the radial nerve injury is pretty complex compared to the two other nerves that we already discussed. However, if you imagine where the radial nerve is damaged, then you can find out what neurological functions will be disrupted. Okay, now let's move on to another large nerve of the brachial plexus, which is the median nerve. Before we go any further in the discussion of the median nerve, could you please remind me which chord gives rise to the median nerve? That was a little trapped in a trap in that question. It's actually not the chord, but chords which give rise to the median nerve. This is the lateral chord and the medial chord together. They send out some fibers to create the median nerve. And median nerve, just like the radial nerve, contains fibers from all five spinal nerve roots, from C5 all the way through T1. Let's discuss the functions and the innervation of the median nerve. Median nerve innervates most muscles of the anterior forearm compartment, except for the flexor carpi ulnaris muscle. And in the hands, it innervates the thenar eminence. Thenar eminence is this bulge of the muscle right below the thumb. The thenar eminence is composed of three muscles. This is opponens pollicis, the muscle which causes the opposition of the thumb against all the other fingers. Thenar eminence also contains the abductor pollicis brevis, which is the short abductor of the thumb. And lastly, it contains the flexor pollicis brevis, which is the short flexor muscle of the thumb. At the same time, the median nerve innervates the first two lumbricals of the hand. We have four lumbrical muscles on each hand. It's very important to know this because the thumb does not have the lumbrical. The lumbrical muscles exert their function on the metacarpophalangeal joints and distal and proximal interphalangeal joints. And normally what the lumbricals do is that they flex at the metacarpophalangeal joint and they extend at the proximal and distal interphalangeal joints. The easy way to remember the function of the lumbricals is that you should flex your fingers at the metacarpophalangeal joint and look at the position of your hand. Your hand now makes the appearance of the upside L, right? So your fingers are extended, but you have your fingers flexed at the metacarpophalangeal joint, and the L reminds you of the lumbricals. The median nerve innervates only the first two lumbricals, that is, the lumbricals of the index and the middle finger. And finally, let's talk about the sensory innervation of the median nerve in the hand. The median nerve 
innervates lateral three and a half fingers on the palmar surface of the hand. Which means that the median nerve innervates the skin over the thumb, index finger, middle finger, and the lateral half, a lateral half of the ring finger. At the same time, median nerve innervates the dorsal tips of the thumb, index finger, and the radial or the lateral half of the middle finger. Okay, now that we have already discussed the innervation of the median nerve, let's talk about where we can damage the median nerve. We can have either proximal or distal medial nerve, median nerve injury. Sorry, The proximal median nerve injury is at the supracondylar region. If you remember, we already mentioned that supracondylar fracture most commonly damages the median nerve because the median nerve together with the brachial artery lie immediately on top of the supracondylar region of the humerus. Therefore, if we fracture the supracondylar region, that will damage median nerve most of the times. And here is one caveat that I'd like to explain for you. If the supracondylar fracture is non-displaced, then the most likely injured nerve is the median nerve. If the supracondylar fracture is displaced anteromedially, this will still damage the median nerve because the median nerve lies on the medial side of the cubital fossa. In contrast, if the supracondylar fracture is displaced anterolaterally, this is when the radial nerve will be damaged. And I'd like to ask you to remember these displacements and the different nerves which are, which are injured in these displacements. And the same logic applies to the injuries of the median nerve. The more proximal the injury is, the more symptoms and the more deficits the patient experiences. When the patient has supracondylar fracture accompanied by median nerve injury, then we have weakened wrist flexion, because as we mentioned, wrist flexor muscles, except for the flexor car carpi ulnaris, are innervated by the median nerve. At the same time, the proximal median nerve injury will cause weakness of the finger flexor muscles. But these will be the flexors of only the index finger and the middle finger and also the thumb, right? Because the median nerve innervates the thinner eminence. And this will create a very specific hand deformity which is called the hand of benediction and we'll talk about the hand of benediction in the future episodes of the musculoskeletal system okay at the same time the patient with median nerve injury at the proximal side will lose sensation over the lateral three and a half digits at the same time, 
sensation over the thinner eminence will also be lost. And please pay attention to this fact because now we will compare and contrast the proximal median nerve injury to the distal median nerve injury. Distally, the median nerve is most commonly injured in the wrist because median nerve goes through the space in the wrist called the carpal tunnel. When the median nerve is compressed in the carpal tunnel, this is what's called carpal tunnel syndrome. At the same time, if the patient accidentally or intentionally lacerates the volar surface of the wrists, this can also damage the median nerve. When we get the distal median nerve injury, this will spare the wrist flexors, but this will still cause the loss of sensation over the lateral three and a half fingers. And here's the caveat. The sensation over thinner eminence will be spared because the palmar cutaneous branch of the median nerve does not travel through the carpal tunnel. It travels outside of the carpal tunnel. In fact, it lies on top of the flexor retinaculum, which is the ligament, the transverse carpal ligament overlying the volar surface of the wrists. Okay, now I think we have already talked about the median nerve injury. The only thing that I would like to add here is that distal median nerve injury will result in damage to the first two lumbricals. And therefore, we will receive the specific hand deformity, which is called the median claw. Again, more on median claw coming up in the next episode of the musculoskeletal anatomy and physiology. This was the median nerve injury. Now, I know that it's a lot, just like in case of the radial nerve, but the more we go through the information about these nerves, the more we retain this info. Let's move on to the ulnar nerve. And I promise that the ulnar nerve and its injuries are much easier than those of the radial or the median nerves. The ulnar nerve is created from the medial cord of the brachial plexus. And the ulnar nerve has very specific innervation. Well, it innervate in, in the anterior forearm compartment, it innervates the muscle called flexor carpi ulnaris. And this muscle is responsible for the wrist flexion together with the flexor carpi radialis innervated by the median nerve. In the hand, the ulnar nerve innervates almost all the intrinsic muscles of the hand. Now let's go through these intrinsic muscles one by one because it's very high yield to know them and to know their function. First, hypothenar eminence, which is the muscle bulge immediately below the, uh, the, the pinky finger, is the hypothenar eminence. Hypothenar eminence contains the similar group of the muscles that are contained in the thenar eminence. 
Do you guys remember which nerve innervates the muscles of the thenar eminence? And that's right. It's the median nerve. In contrast, the hypothenar eminence is innervated by the ulnar nerve. And hypothenar eminence muscles are responsible for the movement of the pinky finger. So here we have opponens digiti minimi, which is the muscle responsible for the opposition of the pinky finger to all the other fingers. We also have abductor digiti minimi, which logically abducts the pinky finger. And then we have flexor digiti minimi, which flexes the pinky finger. At the same time, the ulnar nerve innervates the last two lumbrical muscles. That is, the lumbrical muscles on the ring and pinky finger. Could you please remind me the normal function of the lumbrical muscles? That's right. It's the flexion at the metacarpophalangeal joint and extension at the proximal and distal interphalangeal joints. Okay, and uh, otherwise, ulnar nerve also innervates the palmar and the dorsal interossei muscles. These are the muscles in between the metacarpal bones, and they are responsible for the finger abduction, abduction and abduction. So, palmar interossei muscles are responsible for the finger adduction, and the dorsal interossei muscles are responsible for the finger abduction. The way you can remember this is by mnemonics PED and DEB. So P stands for palmar interossei and ED stands for adduction, while D stands for dorsal interossei, while EB stands for abduction. Okay. The cutaneous innervation of the ulnar nerve spreads over the medial one and a half fingers. This is the pinky finger and the medial part of the ring finger. Now, there are two possible sites where we can potentially damage the ulnar nerve. This is the fracture of the medial epicondyle of the humerus and the fracture of the hook of hamate. Now, medial epicondyle is a small protrusion on top of the medial condyle of the humerus. And immediately under the medial epicondyle, there is the ulnar groove, the space where the ulnar nerve goes from the arm to the forearm. And the most common site of the ulnar nerve injury is actually the medial epicondylar fra fracture. The medial epicondylar fracture is also known as the funny bone, and it's considered to be the proximal ulnar nerve injury. The distal ulnar nerve injury is due to the fracture of the hook of hamate. Hamate is one of the bones in the wrist, and we'll talk about the wrist bones in today's episode. Hook of hamate winds around and above the ulnar nerve. So we have the fracture of hook of hamate from the fall on outstretched hand. This can definitely cause the ulnar neuropathy. The proximal ulnar nerve injury 
will result in radial deviation of the wrist during wrist flexion. So as we already mentioned, wrist flexion is mediated by the ulnar nerve and the median nerve, right? So if ulnar nerve is paralyzed, then the median nerve and the flexor carpi radialis cause the radial deviation of the wrist upon flexion. At the same time, the proximal lesion will cause inability to flex the pinky finger and the ring finger. And the distal lesion will manifest with the paralysis of the lumbricals. Therefore, we will receive the special sign. And this sign will be called the ulnar claw. We will talk about this more in the next episode, okay? All right, so this was discussion about the ulnar nerve injury. And one more thing, we will have the loss of sensation over the hypothenar eminence. Let's move on to the recurrent branch of the median nerve. The recurrent branch of the median nerve, as the name implies, is the part of the median nerve. Therefore, it also contains the fibers from the C5 all the way through T1 nerve roots. The recurrent branch of the median nerve is the purely motor branch of the median nerve. And it innervates the thinner eminence. Could you please remind me those three muscles that constitute the thinner eminence? I hope you're saying that this is opponens pollicis abductor pollicis brevis, and flexor pollicis brevis. Therefore, if we have the damage of specifically the recurrent branch of the median nerve, this will cause the damage to the thinner muscle, atrophy of the thinner muscle. And therefore, all of these three functions will be weakened. Opposition will be completely lost. Now let's make sense out of this concept here. Thumb opposition is mediated by only one muscle, which is called opponens pollicis. But the abduction and flexion of the thumb are mediated by two muscles, short and long, which are appropriately called the brevis and the longus, right? Which are Latin for short and long. So if recurrent branch of the median nerve innervates the opponent's pollicis, then the damage of this nerve will cause complete denervation of the opponent's pollicis muscle and complete loss of the finger opposition. And the atrophy of the thinner eminence will result in something called the ape hand. If you look at the monkeys, the apes specifically, they have very, very flat thinner eminence. And this is why atrophy of the thinner eminence is also known as the ape hand. And in order to test for the atrophy of the thinner eminence, you could ask the patient to hold the paper between the index finger and the thumb. In order to perform this movement, you need to oppose the index finger against the thumb. So opponent's pollicis should be working in order to hold the paper between your thumb and the index finger. In case of the proximal median nerve or, or distal median nerve injury or the injury of the recurrent branch of the median nerve, the opponent's pollicis doesn't work and therefore the patient won't be able to hold the paper between the thumb and the index finger. It's very important to remember 
that recurrent branch of the median nerve will not affect the cutaneous sensation because again this branch is purely motor branch it has nothing to do with the sensory innervation of the skin even the skin immediately on top of the thinner eminence which is innervated by the palmar cutaneous branch of the median nerve so these were the individual nerves of the brachial plexus and we have discussed the potential sites of their injury and the manifestations of their injury now let's move on to the brachial plexus lesions in brachial plexus lesions i mean the injuries proximal to the individual nerves mostly these are the injuries of the trunks but it can also affect the spinal nerves themselves or the brachial plexus nerve roots the first brachial plexus injury that i'd like to discuss with you guys is the herbs palsy it's also sometimes referred to as herb duchenne's palsy these are the same things and the non-medical term for the herb palsy is the waiter's tip and you will understand why herb duchenne's palsy is called the waiter's tip at the end of discussion of this particular topic herb palsy is caused either by traction or complete tear of the upper trunk of the brachial plexus could you please remind me which nerve roots create the upper trunk that's totally correct c5 and c6 nerve roots create the upper trunk therefore if the upper trunk is affected in the herb duchenne's palsy it means that all the nerves of the brachial plexus that contain the c5 and c6 fibers will be affected before we talk about the muscles and the nerves affected in the herb palsy let's talk about the mechanism of injury of the upper trunk in infants and adults in adults is usually a trauma but in infants the lateral traction on the neck during the vaginal delivery can tear the upper trunk you can imagine that the upper trunk experiences the greatest degree of tension in a healthy normal patient because upper trunk is farthest from the level of the shoulder therefore is it, it is stretched to the greatest degree and if we laterally deviate the neck this can tear up the upper trunk resulting in the herb palsy during vaginal delivery okay now let's talk about the muscles which are affected by c5 c6 nerve roots and the deficits which will be evident in case of the herb duchenne palsy deltoid and supraspinatus muscles as we already mentioned are innervated by the c5 c6 roots deltoid is innervated by the axillary nerve and supraspinatus is innervated by the suprascapular nerve and both of these nerves contain c5 and c6 fibers or the axons from these two spinal nerves now i need your help here could you please remind me the function of the supraspinatus and the deltoid muscles are you saying that supraspinatus abducts the arm within the first 15 degrees while deltoid abducts the arm from 15 to 90 degrees 
Mm -hmm. I hear you. And that's, that's totally correct. So if herb palsy causes weakness of the deltoid and supraspinatus muscles, it means that the patient will not be able to abduct the arm. If abduction is paralyzed, then the arm will be hanging by side, next to the patient's trunk. Okay, now we have explained why patients with herb palsy have the arm constantly adducted. Let's move on to the next set of the muscles and let's explain the next feature of this lesion. C5 and C6 nerve roots also give rise, I mean, also give rise to the suprascapular nerve, which innervates the infraspinatus muscle as well, right? And infraspinatus muscle is responsible for the external or lateral rotation of the arm. So if infraspinatus muscle is paralyzed, then the patient cannot externally rotate the arm. So the arm will constantly be in internally rotated position. Finally, we already mentioned that musculocutaneous nerve contains the fibers from C5, C6, and C7 nerve roots, right? Therefore, herb Duchenne palsy will also affect the musculocutaneous nerve and the muscle innervated by this nerve. Do you remember the muscle? That's right, it's biceps brachii. And do you also remember the fu two functions of biceps brachii? This is elbow flexion and supination of the forearm in the flexed position. So if the patient has herb Duchenne palsy, then biceps brachii will be paralyzed or at least weakened, and therefore the patient will be unable to flex the elbow and to supinate the elbow in the flexed position. This is why the arm will be constantly extended and constantly pronated in the herb Duchenne palsy. Now, I'd like you to imagine the patient whose arm is adducted, internally rotated, extended, and pronated. This is what waiter's tip signifies. So, it, it looks like the waiter is waiting for the tip to be given. Okay, this was herb Duchenne palsy or herb palsy. Let's move to the Klumke palsy. Klumke palsy is also known as the claw hand. And the Klumke palsy is caused by traction or tear of the lower trunk of the brachial plexus. Let's contrast this to the herb palsy. Herb palsy was due to traction or tear of the upper trunk, right? Herb, upper trunk or upper trunk. But the Klumke palsy is due to the traction or tear of the lower trunk. Now I need your help. Could you please remind me which spinal nerves create the lower trunk? That's right. It's C8 and T1 spinal nerves or spinal nerve roots. Logically, all the, all the nerves of the brachial plexus, which contain the C5 and T1 nerve fibers, will be affected. Before we talk about the muscles and the clinical features of the Klumke palsy, 
Let's talk about the mechanism of Klonke palsy in infants and in adults. In adults, again, it's usually a trauma which involves, involves the excessive abduction of the arm. For example, if the patient is falling from the height and the patient grabs the tree branch to break a fall, this will cause hyperabduction of the arm. And you can imagine that if we abduct the arm excessively beyond the 180 degrees, this will put the greatest tension on the lower trunk of the brachial plexus. And this is what will cause the tear or severe traction of the lower trunk. In the infants, the clunky palsy usually results when the physician or the nurse exerts the upward force on the arm during delivery. So if we pull the baby up by just hanging the baby's arm, this will cause hyperabduction of the arm and it will put the greatest tension on the lower trunk. Okay, now which muscles are affected in the concave palsy? These are intrinsic hand muscles because intrinsic hand muscles, which are lumbricals, interossei, thinner and hypothenar eminences, are all innervated by the C5 or T1 nerve fibers. It's a little bit tricky here. As we already explained, thinner eminence muscles are innervated by the median nerve, right, which contains the fibers all the way from C5 through T1, while the hypothenar eminence is innervated by the ulnar nerve, which contains the fibers from C8 and T1 nerve roots. Although the median nerve contains the nerve fibers from more proximal nerves, the thinner eminence is innervated by the fibers arising from the C8 and T1 nerve roots. So if the patient has hypothenar eminence atrophy, then there will be weakness of the pinky finger. So the thinner eminence atrophy will cause weakness of the thumb. And then we know that the lumbricals normally flex at the metacarpophalangeal joints and they extend at the proximal and distal, distal intraphalangeal joints. So if the lumbricals are paralyzed, the metacarpophalangeal joints will be hyperextended and the proximal and distal intraphalangeal joints will be flexed. This is what gives the hand the claw appearance in the clonkay palsy. And finally, interossei muscles adduct and abduct the fingers from the second to the ring finger. This was the clonkay palsy. Let's move on to thoracic outlet syndrome. Thoracic outlet syndrome is the compression of the lower trunk subclavian artery and subclavian vein in the thoracic outlet, which is actually the base of the neck. Therefore, the neurological manifestations of thoracic outlet syndrome are identical to those 
of Klumke palsy. Klumke palsy is also caused by the lower trunk compression or tear, and the thoracic outlet syndrome is also characterized by compression of the lower trunk of the brachial plexus. Now, what differentiates Klumke palsy from thoracic outlet syndrome is that thoracic outlet syndrome is the neurovascular syndrome, while Klumke palsy is purely neurological disease. What I mean here is that thoracic outlet syndrome also causes compression of the subclavian artery and subclavian vein. Subclavian artery supplies blood to the upper extremity and the muscles of the upper extremity, while subclavian vein drains the blood from the upper extremity. Now let's, re let's analyze what will happen in case of subclavian artery compression and subclavian venous compression. When we compress the subclavian artery, this will decrease the arterial blood flow to the upper extremity. Therefore, the patient can present with the signs of chronic arterial insufficiency, like pain, there might be pallor of the upper extremity, there might be weak pulses, and etc. Especially if the patient works out with that upper extremity, this will cause exacerbation of the pain. And for this, we have a special maneuver, which is called the Edson test. In Edson test, we ask the patient to abduct his or her arms and then to make fist several times with both hands. This will increase the activity of the muscles of the upper extremity. And in patients with thoracic outlet syndrome, the blood flow cannot meet the increased metabolic demand. That's why patients in Edison test will have increased pain sensation in the affected arm if they have thoracic outlet syndrome. Now, what will happen if we compress the subclavian vein? Could you please tell me this? Are you saying that the patient will have edema of the appropriate upper extremity? It's totally right. As we already mentioned, subclavian vein drains blood from the upper extremity. So if we compress subclavian vein in case of thoracic outlet syndrome, then blood can no longer be drained and backup of blood and hydrostatic pressure will cause transudation of fluid in the interstitium of the upper extremity. And this will cause the pitting edema of the upper extremity. Let's talk about the causes of the thoracic outlet syndrome. What can compress the lower trunk, subclavian artery, and subclavian vein? First, the patient might have the cervical rib. Let's take a step back and let's remind ourselves that the ribs start from the thoracic vertebrae, from T1. But some people also have an accessory rib connected to the C7 vertebra. And this accessory upper rib can compress the neurovascular structures in the thoracic outlet. Otherwise, the pancoast tumor can also compress the neurovascular structures in the thoracic outlet. 
Could you please remind me what the Penkel Stumer is? I hope you're saying that Penkel Stumer is the superior self-esteemer of the lungs. And it's located immediately under the lower trunk, subclavian artery, and subclavian vein. So Pankosteumer can exert the mass effect on these neurovascular structures. Finally, the patient might have the scalene hypertrophy resulting in thoracic outlet syndrome. We have three Set, like three scalene muscles on each side of the neck, anterior, middle, and posterior scalene muscles. The, lower, the brachial plexus, including the lower trunk and subclavian artery and vein, go between these scalene muscles. If I remember correctly, between anterior and the middle scalene muscles. So if the patient has scalene muscle hypertrophy uh, yeah, scalene muscle hypertrophy, this will result in compression of these neurovascular structures. So this was discussion of the thoracic outlet syndrome. The final brachial plexus lesion that I'd like to discuss with you is the winged scapula. The winged scapula is due to damage of the long thoracic nerve. I have two questions for you guys. First of all, could you please remind me the origin of the long thoracic nerve? I hope, I really hope you're saying that long thoracic nerve originates from the C5, C6, and C7 nerve roots, or the spinal nerves. And one more question. Do you remember which muscle is innervated by the long thoracic nerve? Are you saying serratus anterior? If you are, then you are a very, very attentive listener. It's definitely serratus anterior, which is innervated by the, uh, by the long thoracic nerve. Long thoracic nerve lies directly upon the serratus anterior, and the serratus anterior muscle itself is on the lateral side of the thorax. How can we damage the long thoracic nerve? Well, if we damage the lateral thoracic wall, this can also damage the long thoracic nerve. This can happen in case of axillary lymph node dissection after mastectomy. At the same time, if the patient experiences the stab wound to the lateral thorax, this can also damage the long thoracic nerve resulting in winged scapula. So these are two most common classic scenarios that they test winged scapula in. This will be either the woman with breast cancer who underwent the axillary lymph node dissection and develops the winged scapula, or this will be the patient who got into an altercation got the stab wound in the lateral thorax and now presents with winged scapula. Okay, could you please tell me the function of serratus anterior? As we already mentioned, serratus anterior, together with trapezius, is responsible for arm abduction above the horizontal 
plane. If the patient has long thoracic nerve injury, then he or she will have weakness in the arm abduction above the horizontal position. But then, the only thing that we have left to explain here is why this disease is called the winged scapula. And here is the thing. Serratus anterior has one more function. As we already explained previously in this episode, serratus anterior originates on the lateral rib surfaces and it inserts on the medial border of the scapula. And serratus anterior, the normal tone in the serratus anterior muscle, keeps the scapula close to the posterior ribcage. You can imagine that if we have the damage to the long thoracic nerve, then serratus anterior is atrophic and weak, so it can no longer keep the scapula close to the posterior ribcage. And the scapula, the ipsilateral scapula, will protrude outwards. This will be especially evident if we ask the patient to stand next to the wall with the face looking at the wall and put the hands up on the wall. This will make the winged or protruded scapula even more evident. And this was discussion about the winged scapula. The last topic of this episode is the wrist region and specifically the anatomy of the wrist region. What I mean here is that we will discuss the carpal tunnel syndrome separately when we move on to the pathology of the musculoskeletal system. Here, let's focus on the normal anatomy of the wrist. The wrist region consists of the wrist bones, also known as the carpal bones, the flexor retinaculum, which is the transverse carpal ligament on the palmar surface of the wrist, and the space between the wrist bones and the flexor retinaculum called carpal tunnel. The wrist bones are located in two, um, in, in two rows. So we have the distal row and we have the proximal row. We should know the sequence of the wrist bones in both proximal and the distal row. And there is very, very useful mnemonic for this. Mnemonic sounds like this. So long to pinky, here comes the thumb. So long to pinky signifies the proximal row, while here comes the thumb indicates, indicates the distal row. And the first letters of these words indicate the first letters of the wrist bones. So let's start from the thumb side and let's go all the way to the pinky finger side. So long to pinky. So S stands for scaphoid bone. L stands for lunate. T stands for triquetrum. And P stands for pisiform. Okay, this was the proximal row. Now let's discuss the distal row. And we will discuss distal row coming from the pinky finger side to the thumb side. The mnemonic is, here comes the thumb. So H is hamate, which is at the base of the fifth metacarpal bone. 
then C is for capitate, and then two T's are for trapezoid and trapezium. So let's summarize these bones. This is scaphoid, lunate, triquetrum, pisiform, and the distal row is hamate, capitate, trapezoid, and trapezium. Let's focus on the scaphoid bone. Scaphoid bone is palpable in the anatomic snuff box. Anatomic snuff box is the small triangular depression at the base of the first metacarpal bone. And if, if you palpate the bone in the anatomical snuff box, this is the scaphoid bone. It's especially prominent in slender, skinny people. For example, right now I'm looking at my anatomical snuff box, which is not evident at all. However, it's more evident if the patient is slender or skinny. Scaphoid bone is the most commonly fractured wrist bone. And the classic mechanism of injury of the scaphoid bone is the fall on an outstretched hand. It's very important to remember that the scaphoid bone has something called retrograde blood supply. Now let's take a step back and explain what retrograde blood supply means. This means that the radial artery traverses the I mean, it, the radial artery rests on top of the scaphoid bone and it goes beyond the scaphoid bone and only then it sends back the branch to supply the scaphoid bone. Now, you can imagine that the fracture in the middle of the scaphoid bone will maintain blood supply to the distal scaphoid segment, but it will absolutely disrupt the blood supply to the proximal scaphoid segment. The reason this is so high yield is that the scaphoid fracture can be complicated by avascular necrosis of the proximal scaphoid segment. And the avascular necrosis of the proximal segment is because it has disrupted blood supply. And if there is the avascular necrosis of the proximal segment of the scaphoid fracture, this can result in permanent non-union between the distal and the proximal segments of the scaphoid fracture. It's also high yield to remember that the scaphoid fracture is not always visible immediately on the hand x-ray. In other words, the hand x-ray has low sensitivity for detecting the scaphoid fracture in the immediate period after the trauma. So negative x-ray should not make us exclude the scaphoid fracture. Another clinical consideration with respect to the wrist bones is the dislocation of the lunate. Lunate bone, as we already explained, belongs to the proximal row and it lies lateral sorry, not lateral, but medial to the scaphoid bone. And if the lunate is dislocated from the dorsal position to the palmar position, this can compress the median nerve in the carpal tunnel, resulting in carpal tunnel syndrome. The last clinical consideration of the wrist bones is the fracture of the hook of hamate. 
which we have already discussed, by the way, could you please remind me which nerve will be affected in case of fractured hook of hamate? I hope you're saying that this is the ulnar nerve. And this will, the, the fracture of the hook of hamate will cause the distal ulnar nerve pulsing. Okay, now let's talk about the contents of the carpal tunnel and also the structure of the flexor retinaculum. Carpal tunnel normally contains 10 different structures. Out of these 10 structures, one is nerve and all the other structures are the tendons of the finger muscles. Towards the palmar surface of the wrist, we have vertically arranged tendons of the flexor digitorium superficialis muscles. So we have four tendons of four flexor digitorium superficialis muscles. Towards the dorsal surface of the wrist, we have horizontal arrangement of the flexor digitorium profundus tendons. The difference between these muscles is that flexor digitorium superficialis muscles innervate, not innervate, but they control the proximal interphalangeal joints, while flexor digitorium profundus muscles and tendons control the distal interphalangeal joints and they flex these joints. Then radially, we have flexor pollicis longus tendon, which is the long flexor of the thumb. And finally, we have the median nerve. Okay, the flexor retinaculum, on the other hand, is the transverse carpal ligament, which is this fibrous sheath immediately on top of the carpal tunnel. On the medial side of the flexor retinaculum, we have something called Guillaume Canal. Guillaume Canal contains two structures. It's much simpler compared to the carpal tunnel. Guillaume Canal Canal contains the ulnar nerve and the ulnar artery. And when we go to the pathology section of musculoskeletal system, we'll also talk about the Guillaume Canal syndrome, which is also high yield. On the radial side or the lateral side of the flexor retinaculum, we have the flexor carpi radialis tendon, which goes through the flexor retinaculum. So this was discussion of the wrist region. We have come to an end of our today's episode and let's summarize everything that we have discussed today. In this episode, we have discussed several topics of the musculoskeletal anatomy. First, we talked about the rotator cuff muscles, the function and the innervation of each of these muscles and the most commonly injured muscle, which is supraspinatus. Then we talked about the different degrees of the arm abduction and the muscles and nerves responsible for that part of abduction movement. Then we moved on to discussion of the brachial plexus. We talked about the different segments of the brachial plexus and we have also discussed the individual nerves arising from the brachial plexus along with the muscles innervated by these nerves. 
This was followed by discussion about the brachial plexus lesions, such as the Herb Duchenne palsy, Clonke palsy, thoracic outlet syndrome, and the winged scapula. And we wrapped up this episode by discussing the wrist region with a special emphasis on the clinical considerations like scaphoid fracture, lunate dislocation, and the hook of hamate fracture. You can leave the voice message on this episode to let us know how we can improve our podcast for you. So thank you for your kind attention to Assembly Ears and see you on the next episode.